Welcome to London Calling EU's Eurovision Special. I'm Dean Vuletic, a Eurovision expert and author of the first ever scholarly book on the history of Eurovision, post-war Europe and the Eurovision Song Contest. It's the product of a research project funded by the European Commission's Marie Skłodowska Curie Actions and it's published by the British publishing house Bloomsbury. London Calling EU aims to tease out the areas where the UK and EU overlap. And as the UK prepares to welcome the Eurovision Song Contest back to the UK for the first time since 1998, it offers a great opportunity to take a closer look at the competition itself and its musical, cultural and political impacts over the years. Last year's competition in Turin was of course actually won by Ukraine with the song Stefania, performed by the group Kalush Orchestra. But given the tragic ongoing war, the UK, last year's runner-up, offered to host on Ukraine's behalf. And so we have it that the city of Liverpool is hosting Europe's greatest cultural show this year. I'm delighted to be joined by Claudette Buttigieg. Claudette represented Malta in Eurovision in 2000, and now she represents her country in Parliament as an MP from the Nationalist Party, the same party which the President of the European Parliament, Roberta Mezzola, comes from. Claudette is also Shadow Minister for Civil Liberties. With Claudette, we have Paul Jordan, a Eurovision scholar and author who was also known in Eurovision circles as Dr. Eurovision. Claudette, how about we start with a quick introduction to the contest itself? Although Paul and I have for many years been researching the contest, you have actually performed on its stage in Stockholm in 2000 at the turn of the millennium. Why is this year's contest historically significant? Oh, the minute you say, you know, 2000 and my experience then, my memory really goes back and I still remember the emotions of going on the big stage facing more than three cameras in a setup, which I had never experienced before, but technology and everything. I think that was just extraordinary. And it's still a fresh memory and a memory which I thoroughly enjoyed and I still carry with me. And I do it proudly because, you know, at the end of the day, it was a good experience. And how has Eurovision changed since 2000, Claudette? What are the big changes that you see? There are many more participating countries. The standard, I think, has gone up. It's become the huge event, which I think many dreamed it would be. For some, it has become definitely a career launchpad. In my days, it was different. There was a lot of lobbying between the different countries behind the scene. Your team would kind of meet the other team. And today, this cannot really happen. There's more power to the people through voting. And for you, Paul, 2000 was a special year as well, because that's when you first attended Eurovision. Claudette was on stage, you were in the audience. This year must also be very special for you. As the first person from a British university to receive a PhD on Eurovision, your focus was on how the contest has been used in the cultural diplomacy of former Soviet states, including Ukraine. So could you explain to us why has Eurovision been so important for Ukraine? Yes, hi Dean and hi Claudette and thanks for having me on. It's actually funny seeing you all these years later. I actually met you in Stockholm at the after show party. <laughs> no further details, please. No further details. <laughs> and uh, I met the UK entry that year and she was very upset because at that point we had scored the worst ever placing. Um, and since then she's become a friend and I've actually met my partner through her. So it's funny how 
my Eurovision world has actually affected my personal life. But yeah, just to answer your question, Dean, I feel very emotional talking about Ukraine because it's a country that I studied in. It's a country that I spent a lot of time there doing my research. I've got a lot of friends there. What's happened there has been an absolute tragedy, but it's also bizarre in the sense that my PhD, 17, 18 years after I did my research, has finally come in useful. But certainly for Ukraine and other former Soviet states, Eurovision is a really good opportunity to showcase yourself to the world. And I think for smaller countries that are lesser known on that world stage, we can't necessarily take these things for granted. You know, countries like Estonia, Ukraine, Latvia, they're unlikely to host the World Cup or the Olympic Games. And yet Eurovision is that opportunity. And for Ukraine, it was the first chance to control their international image since independence. And a lot of people associated Ukraine with Chernobyl or with corruption. And then after they won Eurovision, they had this big revolution in 2005. So it was a really optimistic and important time. And for Ukraine, I think we can't underestimate the significance of it. And Paul, your PhD and subsequent book centred on the power of the cultural diplomacy of Eurovision in relation to Estonia. Would you go as far to say that winning Eurovision in 2001 and hosting it the year after played a role in Estonia's Europeanist aspirations on its way to entering the EU in 2004? That's certainly what my research showed. The then Prime Minister, Mark Lahr, gave a speech the following day after they won, saying that they were walking into Europe, not with tanks, but by singing. And that was a play on the so-called singing revolution at the end of the Soviet era, where the Estonians took to the streets and sang national songs because they couldn't obviously protest in the same way. And songs and singing became part of a protest movement. And certainly at the time... You know, European Union was very much on the horizon. The accession was happening. Estonia was very proud to be one of the first countries to be accepted into negotiation agreement talks. There was a lot of cynicism. There was a lot of discussion about having left one big union. Do we really want to join another? And the UK ambassador at the time, Sarah Squire, said that she thinks on some level winning and hosting Eurovision gave Estonians a sense of being part of a European family. You know, there's no evidence, but she went as far to say that she believes anecdotally that that did get it over the line. It did allow people to feel European and therefore they voted for the EU. And um, I think with Estonia, they've got a long history of European television. They used to watch it on Finnish TV. And with Eurovision, it was an emotional thing as well. And Estonia is a small country. And like Ukraine, it was an opportunity to say something positive to the world and one in which other people in larger European countries might be a little bit cynical about. But I think put yourselves in the shoes of a smaller country and any opportunity to have your flag on that screen, no matter for how short a time, I think uh, should not be laughed at. Does that experience resonate with you, Claudette? Malta is also a small country. And in 2004, Malta entered the EU alongside Estonia. Now, Claudette, Malta has not yet won and hosted Eurovision, even though it has had a lot of top 10 placings, including your own. And it has one of the most enthusiastic national audiences for the contest. So why is Eurovision so important for a country like Malta? I think Paul was spot on as to what Eurovision means to a small country like mine. We cannot aspire to host, you know, the World Cup. We cannot aspire to host the Olympic Games. We are hosting the Small Nations Games this year. So that is our remit, you know, our size fits into that profile. But yes, this means the world to us because you're seeing a great opportunity, as Paul said, to raise your country's flag through music and to create awareness about your country and about your culture and about your identity. And yet you're doing it within a European contest, which for Malta is even all 
the surveys related to our presence in Europe, in the European Union, show how much the Maltese people have been wanting this and are still very keen about it. So there is definitely a relationship there. And Malta has seen, as you rightly put it, Dean, some very good results. We've placed among the top 10. I I feel lucky to have been one of those singers. But when we don't, it's like a national tragedy. You know, when you don't make it to the finals, it's like, oh my goodness, the world hates us kind of thing. But it does mean a lot. It's a great opportunity also from the perspective of the artists themselves. This is a major, huge, huge platform. And I always tell you, Dean, that there is this love-hate relationship with the Eurovision. And as much as I get, you know, positive messages about it, I also get very negative ones, like, you know, ridiculing it and all that. And, you know, this issue of voting for your neighbors and, and all that stuff. But I always reply with the fact that when we did well, We were still the same size and we had the same neighbors. So it does not actually apply. You know, the fact that, yes, some countries in the voting, when they announce the votes, you know, they say, and to our neighbors, that really doesn't help the argument. But when we look at the songs which actually do win or which place among the top 10, they are definitely the favorites. It's not just the neighbors and the political with a small p. And of course, Eurovision has a broader social impact. It's not just about culture and politics. It's played a significant role as a bastion for LGBTIQ rights, another platform to demonstrate our shared European values. Now, Claudette, this is very pertinent for you, particularly because you performed your song Desire at UK Pride in 2001. Could you tell us a bit more about that? And I'm especially asking you this because Malta is these days considered to be the EU member state, which has the best legal and political situation regarding LGBTIQ rights. Yes, well, actually, this is something which I treasure very, very much. And I I also think that my popularity as a singer is related to this fact both locally and in the European platform particularly, I was always strongly linked to desire in particular, but also my performance was strongly linked to the LGBTI community. Although for Malta, this is more of a national event, more than just an LGBTIQ event, it has national importance. Yes, I do feel the strength of the community, which basically feels that through the Eurovision, maybe because of the history itself. But yes, there's this sense of liberation and the sense of freedom and the cliches and the kitsch and and all that goes with it and the flamboyance and, you know, and the making such a big thing out of Eurovision that it is the ideal platform. So, yeah, I, I feel proud to be part of this. Absolutely. For a lot of people, Eurovision has also got an emotional element. And there was some research done in the 1990s about fandom, particularly in Ireland. And a lot of Eurovision fans who were not out at home could go to Eurovision and be themselves. And that's a really powerful thing, you know, this safe space that Eurovision offers. And I think it's wonderful that it's become mainstream. And I think it's great that it's really embraced LGBTQ plus community and fandom. There's also something about just remembering that Eurovision is for everyone. And I think that's what's really powerful. You don't have to just be gay to like it. And likewise, if you're gay, that's okay as well. And uh, Eurovision can take place in countries where that's not always the most acceptable. And that's what I think is interesting because it pushes boundaries of both fans, but as well as host countries. And I think it starts a dialogue, which can only be a good thing. 
I really agree with you, Paul. I think also when you are performing in the show itself and when you're meeting other singers from other countries and then you meet the fans, you do realize that some countries, because of their political background mostly, there isn't, you know, the sense of, of comfort in waving the rainbow flag, so to speak. But then again, once it's happening and they feel they need to fit in, then you see everybody saying, well, it's not that bad after all, you know, maybe I can't push it as much as I'd like to, but while I'm here, it's okay. So there's this kind of thing, which I think really, really helps. From a political perspective, what is really, really much stronger is issues like the Russia-Ukraine conflict and the war, etc. But this didn't happen just this time. We've seen different performances uh, where you could hear, you know, the warmth of the people saying, we are backing this. And even the votes of the public, they actually show that, you know, solidarity, I think, plays a very, very important role in the Eurovision. I think that's a really good word, solidarity, because I think that's what happened last year with Ukraine. It wasn't necessarily politics. It was about Europe just picking up the phone and saying, we're with you. And I thought it was a really powerful moment. And just talking about other situations, I mean, Dean, I'm sure it's very close to home for you. But when Bosnia-Herzegovina were called in the jury in 1993 and the audience erupted in this spontaneous applause, you know, this is a country at war at the time and they made contact with that jury. It was a, a moment of history, really. I don't think we've ever seen anything like that in television. Or the victory of Conchita Wurst in 2014 for Austria, the bearded drag queen, when Europe also came around an issue. Absolutely. And I think um, the UK commentator Graham Norton said, you know, he made a few comments during the voting that year that, oh, this country is not going to vote for Austria because they won't like that. And they did. And I think that was really powerful. And you can't necessarily judge people by their governments. And I thought that was a really powerful message. Yeah, I would absolutely agree with that, Paul. I still think there are a lot of stereotypes of Central and East Europe in the Western European media that we need to get over because the Cold War has certainly ended. The European Union now includes many countries from Central and East Europe. But through the English language, the UK is a global cultural superpower, and we've seen this as well in the course of Eurovision's history. The UK was one of the most successful countries in Eurovision in the 20th century. Some might also argue because it was able to sing in its official language, English, at a time when all countries had to sing in their official languages. Now, that rule was abrogated in 1999, partly because there were five English language winners from 1992 to 1997, four came from Ireland, and the UK won for the last time in 1997. Now, Sam Ryder's second place last year has seen the UK rediscover Eurovision and success on its stage. Paul, how has Sam Ryder's second place been so important for the UK's reignited passion for Eurovision? I think, Dean, it's, it's been wonderful to see a singer who's really embraced Eurovision, been really positive about it, but also gone on to great success after. He's done a massive sellout tour. He's had a number one album. And people think he's credible as an artist. There's not this tag of Eurovision being somehow bad. It's like, yeah, Sam did really well in Eurovision. He's a great artist. 
there are so many examples of countries doing well one year and then, you know, falling behind another year. So I want to build on this and keep up that momentum so that, you know, we do attract new artists. We do attract people to use this as a launch pad. For an emerging artist, and Claudette, you can speak to this, I'm sure, you know, having that global audience, you're never going to get that in your career again. It's amazing. It's a massive opportunity. And it's one that I really wish more artists would seize. But for so long, Eurovision has been seen as this kind of stupid event or this bad event or this poison chalice. And actually, it is just a great TV show, a great launch pad, and hopefully more artists will see that in the future. Yes, we were part of the tour as well. So, you know, uh, we had the opportunity to see Sam Ryder here and it was a huge concert. It wasn't just people who are from the LGBT community who went to see this concert and it wasn't just Eurovision fans. His performance was outstanding. So yes, I think it's a matter of credibility. And when something like this happens, I think it's not just the country or the singer which benefits, but I think it's the whole Eurovision. It was a bit like Lordi, for instance. I was there in Greece when Lordi won. It was outstanding. The performance was really incredible. And we had a lot of rockers around the world, you know, saying, you know, this is the song. And I'm sure they voted and they would not have participated or would not have voted had it not been for Lodi. I went to their concert in Glasgow uh, that year. And it was the most bizarre thing because I think I was only one of two or three Eurovision fans and the rest of the people were hard rockers. They were so popular and they had a credibility. And I think people can also see through something when it's not credible. You might have, you know, what seems to be a wonderful song, but actually it's very formulaic and it might be, you know, not very credible. And people can see that. Even the novelty ones, you know, Verka Saduchka from Ukraine a few years ago, you know, who's become a bit of a Eurovision icon. It was a novelty song, but it came from a credible place. And I think people can kind of see through when people aren't being genuine. And people also like authenticity, even though most entries are in English now since 1999. Now and then we get some exposure to other European languages. And Claudette, the last time we heard Maltese in Eurovision was actually in one line of your song. Could you sing us that line and tell us what it means? Give us a quick lesson in Maltese. I don't actually sing that bit. It says, which means I've always wanted you. I've always longed for you or wished for you. And you're the one that I've loved. It's this sense of desire explained in Maltese anguish for a person who you long for, who can or cannot be yours, you know, so this feeling. So Deyem in Maltese means always. So it's Deyem Ritek, Deyem Shtatek. Ritek is I want you, Shtatek is I wish or I long for you. And Lilek Habbeit, I loved you, it's in the past. For those who want to learn Maltese, I love you. It's a bit of a strong sounding word. It's in Hobok. I'm writing that down. (laughs) So together with the English language, one of the UK's greatest cultural exports is the BBC. It was a beautiful gesture for the UK to take on the hosting duties this year. And that brings me to the important role played by the BBC in the European media as a model for public service broadcasting. Perhaps it's not so well known, but this is not the first time that the BBC has stepped in to host for other broadcasters, although previously it was done for financial or technical reasons, not due to a war. As I highlight in my book, the BBC has historically played a leading role in Eurovision, especially as the UK has been one of the most successful countries in the contest in the 20th century. 
The BBC was also a leading founder of the European Broadcasting Union, the organizer of Eurovision, and the name Eurovision itself was coined by British journalist George Campy in the Evening Standard in 1951. Another little-known fact is that a BBC official, Timothy O'Brien, designed the original Eurovision logo, one of the first uses of the Circle of Twelve Stars, as a European symbol. So the UK's touches can be found throughout Eurovision. And this year's Eurovision is also full of historical symbolism. Do we also think that this is the start of a new golden era for the UK in Eurovision, Paul? The last time the BBC hosted in 98 was one of the standout moments. They really elevated the production value. And throughout the 90s as well, Ireland did too. So you saw that kind of technical arms race almost of each country trying to outdo each other. But I think that can only be a good thing when you're pioneering new broadcasting techniques, you're learning from each other. And I think that idea of reciprocating knowledge, you know, knowledge exchange that comes through when with Eurovision. You saw the Swedes helping out the Estonians. You saw the Estonians helping out the Latvians. And I think that can only be a good thing. I think in terms of change and the perception of Eurovision in the UK, change takes time. It took the Netherlands, it took Germany a number of years, even Sweden. You know, when they rejigged their national selection to create Melody Festivalen, it took them nearly 10 years to win. But it's now bigger than Eurovision itself. It's incredibly impressive television format. Um, what I would say, I think the BBC this year have really tried hard to try and take this seriously. And that's seen in terms of their coverage. So I've been involved in a few documentaries and they've said, we specifically want to focus on the future. We don't want to be talking about the novelty acts from 30 or 40 years ago. And whilst I think there is merit in that, I don't think we should forget the history of Eurovision, but I do think it demonstrates they do take it seriously. They don't want people to see it as you know, a substandard TV show as a kind of novelty thing. And I think, um, but it does take time. And I think certainly it seems like there's now appetite for Eurovision in the UK. I think people are genuinely curious to see how the BBC staged the event with Ukraine. And I think they've been very tasteful. You know, we didn't win, Ukraine won. And as Sam Ryder, our represented last year, said, it's a party for Ukraine, but we're having it at our house. And I think that's a really nice way of looking at it. Paul, you were just saying how the popularity of Eurovision among different national audiences changes. And I can say that when I was in Austria doing my research project, which led to my book, I saw how Austrians completely changed their attitude towards Eurovision after Conchita Wurst won. It became a tool for them to promote themselves as a modern, open and tolerant country. And I want to ask the both of you, how do you think Eurovision can be used as a tool of diplomacy in these difficult times that Europe faces? I had several occasions where I used the Eurovision as an icebreaker. You're sitting at a very, very formal dinner, you know, you get these moments of silence, you know, and then somebody whispers, are you really, you know, the Eurovision singer for Malta from the year 2000? And the answer is yes. You know, they start talking to you about the Eurovision. The Eurovision has been used in my favour and against. I've been attacked by political opponents, you know, who try to ridicule me for being in politics when I'm the silly singer who went to the Eurovision in 2000. It has come up several times in, in Parliament, you know, when there's a hot argument, you know, somebody says, oh, you, you're one to speak, you're the one who went to the Eurovision. My reaction to that is always a huge smile. And, you know, I always say, well, at least I placed eighth and I did well and I have nothing to be ashamed of. 
of. And actually, if you'd like me to sing, I'll, I'll do it with all pleasure. You know, you have to take it in your stride. But this idea of cultural diplomacy, it is something which I strongly believe in. I lecture at the University of Malta in the uh, Institute of Travel, Tourism and Culture. I always talk to my students about the fact that culture opens up so much. And by culture, I mean anything under the sun, from food to religion, to behavior, to language. There's so much which goes into culture. It is definitely an important tool for cultural diplomacy, and it can really open doors, or at least, you know, oil the squeaky ones or the ones which are harder to open. It's a fantastic tool to make things a bit lighter, and people are much more willing to listen. I completely agree. And I think the pandemic has shown that we actually need this lightness. We need a bit of escapism. And Eurovision in 2021, when it came back, there was a real appetite for it. The idea of it being an icebreaker is spot on because, you know, it's something we've all grown up with. And I think actually in Europe, we're quite lucky to have this. I don't think there's any other continent that has this thing where you can go to Slovenia and I could be in a restaurant and mention Eurovision and they might love it or they might hate it, but they've got an opinion on it and they've heard it. And I think that's really powerful, even as a TV format, you know, it's nearly 70 years old and it's still going. It's that one moment where people sit down at eight o'clock or nine o'clock at night and watch the show. That's bucking the trend. You know, most people are watching things on their phone, downloading, streaming. Eurovision is that live moment. In terms of diplomacy, yes, there's that icebreaker, but it's also that idea that it's above politics in a sense. Yes, I would say politics comes into it, like it does with the World Cup, the Olympic Games, but actually... You've got countries there that have a difficult political history. You know, look at the UK and Malta, look at the UK and Ireland. You know, we are acutely aware of that. And yet it's a one night of the year where we share that stage. We put all that aside. And yes, sometimes there are challenges, but I think it's a very special event. I think we're actually very lucky to have it. Germany, you know, when they won, Dean, you were talking about Austria and reclaiming the flag. You know, Germany, when Lena won in 2010, that also coincided with the World Cup as well. So there was that real kind of flag waving moment that wasn't seen as nationalist or racist. It was actually about embracing modern European multicultural Germany. I would hope that's the way it would be used in other countries as well. But it's also interesting that certainly in the UK now it's become very mainstream, certainly since we've been organising it in Liverpool. And it's funny, it's frustrating a lot of fans because they've tried to get tickets. People have been going for years, myself included, I've got to say, and they couldn't get tickets. And yet everyone else seems to have them. So it's funny how now the fans are kind of almost wishing it wasn't as popular as it was now, but you can't have it both ways. (laughs) It's a bit like recommending a restaurant and then going to book and not finding a place absolutely <laughs> join the italian fan club we always get <laughs> i like what you've both just said obviously there's a connection there as well in how our relationship professional relationships to eurovision are perceived by others paul and i i'm sure can both attest to the fact that eurovision for a long time wasn't taken seriously in academia either claudette so it's not only in political circles it has been maligned but we know the power of eurovision as you've both said something that i can relate to completely when you travel across europe it's an icebreaker it's a conversation starter it's something that everyone has an opinion on whether they love it or they hate it. So it's really something that does unite us. So with the historical symbolism of this year's contest, what are you two most looking forward to seeing in Liverpool? I'm actually looking forward to seeing Liverpool. 
I have never been to Liverpool. I visited the UK all over, but never ever Liverpool. And there's a lot of history in Liverpool uh, when it comes to music. And I feel privileged and really grateful. And I'm sure that, you know, the BBC will outshine itself because that is how, how things are done. There's also the beauty of, like we said before, a country hosting the Eurovision for another country at war. And I think that is really, really solidarity at its best. Mine is about Ukraine, I think, my standout moment. I think it's seeing how the BBC will produce the shows 25 years on from doing the last one and how they'll intertwine Ukraine with the UK and Liverpool, of course, as well. And I think it's very fitting that Liverpool's hosting Eurovision. It's a city that's got, you know, a bit of a tricky past. Uh, links to the slave trade even but also you know we've had difficult times in Liverpool in the 70s and 80s it was a city very much in decline and it's also a city which is really resilient and it's pulled itself up and it's it's a wonderful city Claudette and I'm sure you'll you'll have a great time and Liverpoolians are some of the most welcoming and hospitable in the UK or even in Europe I would go as far to argue and I think it's uh, it's wonderful to see how it's done so well it's also reflective of Ukraine as well you know it's a resilient city and Ukrainians are resilient people as They've shown to the world over the past year? Well, we've never seen a Eurovision like this where the host broadcaster is hosting on behalf of another country. So it's certainly an innovation in the history of Eurovision alongside all of the political significance that it has for Europe right now. But every Eurovision is symbolic, meaningful, and plays its role in Eurovision's history, no matter how big or small, like every Eurovision participant. In my research, I found a lot about the significance of Ukraine hosting it in 2005. There were real challenges around that, even logistically, getting the equipment into the country. And so what they did, they waived the visa regulations for EU passport holders for three months as a trial for Eurovision. And that is still in place today. And so they've got an example of Eurovision really shaping a country's foreign policy. And in 2017, when Kiev hosted uh, Eurovision again, visas were also ended for Ukrainians to visit the EU. So there are a lot of connections there. Many thanks to you both. We have certainly set the scene for Liverpool. And thank you very much for the opportunity. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you. Thanks to our listeners and tune in again soon for more from London Calling EU.